Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan Separated Brother Van Shank, and here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy Old Perspective on Paul Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you Old Perspective on Paul Swingle? Because I think N.T. Wright is N.T. Wrong about Paul. <laughs> Uh, will you parse that for our listeners a little bit? Who is N.T. Wright, Jeremy? Well, that's a giant question. Um, yeah, N.T. Wright is this cool dude over in Britain. Like, he's actually pretty cool. He's he's cool. Like, we're cool. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to criticize him too harshly. But uh, he belongs to this, you know, movement called the New Perspective on Paul, which, uh, well, we're going to talk a little bit about it today um, <laughs> and why, why we have some issues with it. But... Um, for, I guess for the purposes of this intro, just understand that I very much am not a new perspective on Paul guy. I'm an old perspective on Paul guy. So what about you, John? Why are you a separated brother? <laughs> yes. So the in addition to talking about the new perspective on Paul, we're also going to talk about Roman Catholicism today. Um, and now, to be clear, we're not going to dunk on Roman Catholicism the way that we dunked on Billy Graham in a previous <laughs> episode. <laughs> Well, it feels fairer to dunk on Billy Graham because he's like part of our tradition more, right? <laughs> so sure, it's like, I sure. don't know, it feels like deal with your deal with your own disputes before you get too harsh about other groups. I don't know. Exactly. But needless to say, I am not a Roman Catholic. And so in this podcast, we're going to be I'm, you know, me and Jeremy are going to be articulating our differences with uh, Orthodox Roman Catholic doctrine. And so the, the, the modern term among Roman Catholics for Protestants is the, the separated brethren. Um, this is actually going back to uh, the Second Vatican Council, where uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church kind of clarified its position on how it thinks about Protestants. Um, and, you know, kind of historically, the, the Roman Catholic Church tended to treat um, Protestants like heretics, and then after the Second Vatican Council, they kind of softened that position a little bit. Um, and so now, as a Protestant, I'm not necessarily a heretic. And so the term that gets used is separated brethren. So the joke here is that I'm a Protestant, but I'm using the Catholic term for a Protestant. Well, it sounds like you got upgraded to a brother. That's pretty, pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm really, really glad that the Second Vatican Council calls me a brother. <laughs> that is nice. I mean, that's a step in the right direction, probably. It's <laughs> All right. Well, before we jump into the content for today's episode, I'd just like to uh, issue an apology for all of our Spotify listeners. Um, it appears that a couple of our episodes, the ones that came out in September, were not up on Spotify for a little while. And um, the reason is very nitpicky. Apparently, the uh, RSS feed, which is the document that we give Spotify to know where our episodes are, really doesn't like it if you identify the month of September as SEPT instead of SEP. So if you want to take it up with uh, Mr. RSS or whoever is responsible <laughs> for the really nitpicky standards of that feed document, um, then that that was the issue. Which is which is extra strange because iTunes and like Google and Stitcher and like all of these other platforms had no problem interpreting the date correctly. Right. I mean, like what other months start with SEP? <laughs> I'm pretty sure none of them. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> whatever <laughs> but anyways i just want to apologize we should have checked to make sure the spotify episodes were up um i can verify that they are all up now so if you missed any um you can you know uh binge listen to your favorite uh, podcasters now get to hear what the dudes have been talking about for the last month exactly <laughs> cut the chit chat let's crack open the word so that being said um now that we have apologized for our fatal mistake uh let's go into today's verse and it is this, uh, ooh, it's a doozy. It's a doozy, John. Uh, James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Ooh, so not by faith alone, huh? So like get wrecked, Protestants. <laughs> I mean, geez, that's like pretty pretty immediate like dismissal of Protestant doctrine right there. Before we, before we get too hasty, let's take a look at Romans 3.28 which is going to immediately seem to contradict James here, where Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. So we have James saying a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, quote unquote. And then we have Paul saying one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So we have two pretty much opposite statements here. So there's a reason for this dispute, and it's not because the Bible is extremely easy you know, to grasp when it comes to this issue of justification. It's actually kind of tricky, which is why we're going to talk about it today. So I think for this whole episode, it really is going to depend on what we understand the word justified to mean, or justification, if we're talking about like the whole concept um, as a noun. <laughs> so justification by faith alone is this, doc uh, this doctrine that the Protestants um, assert, and they you know, this is the dispute they have with the Roman Catholic Church. And this term justification, uh, part of kind of our, our, our episode today, we'll be figuring out that James and Paul are talking about different things when they use it. But it's important to understand that when Martin Luther and the Protestants talk about justification, they have a specific definition in mind. So, so there is a theological definition of this word, justification, and that might be different than what Paul and James mean by it. But Okay, so we'll get there in a second. But but the theological understanding of justification is that it is the means by which a person is declared to be righteous before God. So we're sinners, right? How can we be accepted by God if we're sinners, right? If we all deserve hell. Justification is our understanding of how God declares us to be righteous. And, and that's what we're dealing with here. And it's different than being made righteous. That would be sanctification or union with Christ. Those are different aspects of doctrine. But justification is the means by which when we stand before the judgment seat, God will declare us to be righteous in Christ. Yeah, the courtroom analogy, I think, is really helpful here. You know, the idea is that we as sinners, you know, we're like it's, you know, we're on trial. We're, you know, before the judge. And when the gavel falls... You know, we're either going to be declared guilty or not guilty. Uh, and this is like the, the declaration that the judge is making. And so justification is about how is it that God, when the gavel falls, calls us not guilty, even though based upon our actions, like what we have done, we deserve a guilty verdict. Absolutely. And uh, part of the dispute with the Roman church is this understanding of justification. Is justification being made righteous? It, you know, is it part of sanctification or not? And whereas Luther and the rest of the Protestants and the whole tradition of Protestantism since then has asserted that, like, no, this whole part of being declared righteous works have nothing to do with this. However, it would be good to clarify at this point 
that justification by faith alone is not the same thing as saying salvation by faith alone. Because salvation in biblical terminology includes more than just our justification. It also includes sanctification and glorification. And we don't need to go into all the details of those doctrines at this point. Um, but the, the, the idea is that true Christians actually will do good works in a Protestant understanding of salvation. It's simply that those works contribute nothing to our justification before God. There's, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is like good works are something that all true Christians do, but you don't have to do good works to become a true Christian. And that's part of the argument that we're going to be making over the course of the episode right here. But before we get too much into our arguments, let's take just a quick second and um, maybe go through some examples of the ways that people maybe misunderstand the verses that we've brought up. So this is James 2, where James says, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in Romans, we hear, you know, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So there is kind of this apparent contradiction between these two verses. So how is it that people tend to kind of try to reconcile these two things before we get into the way that we attempt to reconcile these two things? So Jeremy, what are some ways that people misunderstand these verses? Well, the first one I think uh, is Martin Luther, <laughs> Martin Luther's own approach to this issue. And that is to just downplay James, like just you know, whatever, James, you're like kind of a sub apostle, like you're cool and all, but maybe a little bit less inspired than Paul. And uh, Luther actually referred to James at one point as an epistle of straw. <laughs> <laughs> so an epistle be meaning a letter. So, you know, James is a letter, just like Paul wrote his letters. And then he called it an epistle of straw. Now, sometimes people overstate this historically. Luther didn't actually take James out of the Bible. But he did comment a lot like on how he thought it was a weaker part of scripture and it was less clear about the, the glories of, you know, Christianity than, than Paul's writings. And I really disagree. I strongly disagree with Luther's approach to James because I think he misunderstood James. That's part of it, which we'll talk about today. Um, but also, I just think that's not ever how we should approach scripture. Like, um, I, I mean, granted, there are parts of the Bible that are less encouraging than other parts. I mean, the genealogies are not exactly an exciting read, <laughs> but, uh, but like, it's all equally inspired. It all exists for a reason. Um, and like James is one of those encouraging books of scripture. I mean, like, it's not like first Chronicles. <laughs> James is a great read. And I think most Christians throughout history have agreed. I mean, I don't know. What do you think about James, John? Oh, James is, it's a great book. It's, it's both encouraging and convicting. My pastors has uh, said, it's like, you know, if you ever want to get a good, like spiritual kick in the teeth, go ahead and read the epistle or like, go ahead and read James. <laughs> so much for an epistle of straw, right? Like I just, I strongly, strongly disagree with Luther here on just about every level of this. Um, even if he were right, that like some parts of scripture are weaker than others, um, like, James isn't one of those. <laughs> so, yes, he's um, wrong to call James the epistle of straw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, so that's one approach, um, probably less common, but important to point out historically. Uh, but I think a really common one today among Bible scholars is to just reinterpret Paul. And uh, this is what we call the new perspective on Paul, which I alluded to with my nickname earlier in this podcast. But uh, so the new perspective on Paul 
and I'm going to do my best to be short about this. Um, I, I will fail almost certainly, but uh, <laughs> the, the new perspective on Paul is not really one idea. It's rather, it's a broad movement in theology that uh, basically thinks that the Protestant reformers either got a lot of things wrong or missed a lot of things in the writings of Paul. And they seek to kind of reinterpret Paul. Most of their reinterpretation of Paul concerns his understanding of the word works. Uh, at least most of that's the most important thing for our podcast today. There's plenty of other aspects to the new perspective on Paul. But um, so the new perspective on Paul really makes a lot out of the fact that Paul's concern in his writings is to reconcile Jewish Christians with new Gentile Christians. And that's why you see so much talk about circumcision in Paul, right? And and like being able to accommodate an uncircumcised believer in Christ uh, and treat them as equals of those who are, you know, circumcised Jews who are also believers in Christ. Paul's like ultimate concern is to tear down these barriers and have Jews and Gentiles have full fellowship with one another as part of the same people of God. And the new perspective is entirely right. Like these theologians are completely right to note that this is like Paul's overarching burning passion pretty much in all his writings. Of course, I mean, okay, the glory of God, you could say, is like a greater concern of Paul's. But but like the glory of God, he believes that the unity of the church, Jew and Gentile, is how God wants to be glorified. So like anything, any, anyways, like all of Paul's ultimate goals are wrapped up in this idea that the church needs to be unified, Jews and Gentiles. Okay, all of that is true thus far stated, <laughs> about Paul, but I think where the new perspective starts to get confused is that they think that when Paul talks about works, they they start thinking of works of the law as only circumcision and dietary laws and other, you know, Sabbath and other Jewish distinctives instead of like, they don't consider that Paul is actually talking about the whole law, including all of the moral laws. When Paul talks about justified by faith apart from works of the law, some of the radical new perspective people would be like, yeah, we're justified by faith, not circumcision. That's how they would understand Paul here. I don't think this is even slightly a tenable understanding of that passage, though, because Paul is constantly talking about God justifying the lawless, the sinful, the ungodly. So take a listen to Romans 4 uh, verses 5 and 7 here, and we'll talk about Romans 4 a lot today, but just listen to this. He refers to God as him who justifies, there's our word, the ungodly. So not just, you know, those who aren't circumcised, but the ungodly. Yeah, it's not he who justifies the Gentile, it's the the ungodly, so specifically like the people who do wickedness. Right, yeah. And again, like the new perspective people, I can hear what they're saying here. They're going to be like, oh, well, Gentiles are the ungodly because they're the ones who, you know, weren't given the covenant and, and all this. No, <laughs> Gentile converts to Judaism were referred to as God-fearing Gentiles. Like the, this term ungodly has to be referring to morally sinful people. That has to be what it's talking about. Um, but then also in these verses, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Like, okay, you can't take Romans 3.28 <laughs> as like justified by faith, not circumcision. That's just ridiculous. And it's also a misunderstanding of how Jews thought about the law. Like, the law was far more than just the Jewish distinctives, right? It was also a universal law, right? 
um, don't you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false testimony. Those things were never understood by the Jews to be solely Jewish laws. Those were God's universal moral imperatives. And so I don't, I think this is a misunderstanding of Paul. Certainly circumcision is in, in view with Paul, like always. It's certainly part of it. But this, this new perspective tendency to reduce Paul to like circumcision versus uncircumcision just doesn't work with his actual language. It, it, for Paul, it's all encompassing. It's both the Jewish distinctives and those things that God has always expected Gentiles to do as well, or to not to do for that matter. So <laughs> there's our new perspective spiel. I think we could probably get more into detail on that another episode because it's a great topic, but um, that is my bird's eye view criticism of it. Okay, that being said, <laughs> so we've got downplaying James and reinterpreting Paul as kind of strategies to solve the conundrum. Uh, what are some other ones that I think, I don't know, what have you seen people do, John? Yeah, so I think probably one of the most common ways of resolving this quote-unquote contradiction is to just kind of ignore it and sweep it under the rug. <laughs> and so um, I, I, I think this is the way that I see a lot of people doing it is they, you know, they just don't really attempt to do any harmonization of these two passages of just kind of like, oh, we won't really think about this or we won't really, you know, apply our our intellect toward trying to resolve this. We'll, you know, just sort of like take it of like, ah, oh, like the Bible's true and like, never mind the fact that there is this apparent contradiction right here. I'm just going to like not really think about it. Uh, and that that attempt to just sort of like divert one's mental attentions away from this, I think is usually the way that people try to resolve this. Oh, I see that so much, man. Like, and again, within the Protestant world, I just see like, well, James 2, I don't really know what that says. And I don't like want to worry about it. Well, that's like, that's lazy. Like we're supposed to love the Lord, our God with all our minds. And this is like super important. <laughs> this is an important issue. Like you should be a Catholic if James 2 says that we're justified by faith, not by faith alone. Like, like your entire religious affiliation is dependent on your understanding of this passage. So let's not be lazy about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and I mean, then one of the other ways that people try to resolve this is, uh, well, they don't try to resolve it. They just sort of hop on the bandwagon of saying, yes, in fact, this is a contradiction that Paul and James are opposed to one another. And, and this is the tack that a lot of um, Bible scholars who are unbelieving. So these are people who like are professional, you know, studiers of scripture, but they're not Christians, which I never really understood, like, why you would want to study the Bible if, like, you, you know, didn't think that there was actually a God behind it. But apparently there are those people who exist in this world, and there's lots of them. Baffles me, but I mean... It's arguably the majority of Bible scholars. <laughs> right. It's, again, I don't really get it, but I mean, it's it's their, it's their life. They got to live it their way. But, <laughs> <laughs> but so there's, there's all these unbelieving scholars, and, and they, they'll just basically conclude, yeah, no, James is contradicting Paul. Like, in fact, you know, some of them might even argue that James is, like, aware of Paul's teaching on, you know, justification apart from works— and James is making this statement in his letter specifically to contradict Paul's arguments. And so there's this like division between Paul's theology and James's theology. And they would just assert that like, oh, yeah, no, this is evidence of the fact that the Bible isn't inspired. It's, you know, just these two guys who were writing about their ideas and their opinions. Right. I actually think they might have a point that James was aware of Paul, but uh, I don't think he was contradicting Paul. <laughs> That's, that would be the the uh, difference. James was written before Paul's letters. I believe that is more or less agreed upon by scholars. Um, 
I didn't check check that before we hit record today. But <laughs> um, but yeah, so so but still, Paul had been preaching already by the time James was written. So James might not have had Romans open, but he was certainly aware of Pauline doctrine. So today, I mean, so we're not going to downplay James today or reinterpret Paul. Uh, and we're not going to ignore the issue, obviously. We've already been yammering about it for a while. And uh, we're not going to say that Paul and James were opposed to one another. We're actually going to argue that uh, Paul and James are complementary of one another and that the apparent contradiction comes because they use the same terms in different ways. And they're using terms that have broad dom- domains of meaning, justification, faith, works. And they're using those terms in different ways. But when we come at it 2,000 years later, we have specialized definitions in our heads for what those words mean. Like Luther is telling us how we should understand the word justification. And so we're putting a Luther definition of justification into James. And that's why we're getting confused. But if we actually look at these two passages in context, we're going to find out that what they're saying doesn't contradict at all. So that's going to be our argument, is that we've got a difference in terminology here. Now, maybe to, to justify a little bit that it's uh, that to, this is, in justify. fact, the way that words work, <laughs> uh, and that we're not just, like, making things up here, is uh, in English, we have plenty of words that, you know, given the context, they can mean a, a number of different things. Um, actually, a great example of this is the English word faith. Now, depending on the context, faith can mean a lot of different things. Like, you know, I could say to, you know, my son, like, ah, my son, I have faith in you that you can go and win this soccer game or, you know, something like that. And, you know, I mean that like, oh, I believe that he's capable of accomplishing it. That's, you know, what I mean by faith there. But then, you know, there's this idea of, you know, faith of like, you know, oh, I, you know, are you a person of faith? Like, do you have faith? Um, they're like, oh, yeah, like, I, I have a faith. I'm a Christian. Like, in, in that sense, faith is like, it, it, it refers to this, you know, like, possessing of a belief system. Um, you know, or, you know, we could say in a much more technical sense, kind of the theology definition for the word faith is, you know, like, oh, I have faith in Christ. You know, in that context, faith is much more of this, like, I put my reliance on Jesus, that I'm, like, depending upon him. And so, like even this word faith in English, it means a lot of different things. And so we're going to argue that the, you know, these words faith works and justify or justification in the uh, original language similarly have a broad range of meanings. And so that Paul is using these, you know, words like justified and he's accessing one kind of element of the definition of that word. And that when James is using, you know, when he's writing the same Greek word in his uh, uh, letter, he's trying to access a different sense in which that word can be understood. And that's the way that we're going to broadly attempt to resolve these two passages. And as with all things, it is the context that helps us figure that out. It's not blind guessing as to what the words could mean. Like, oh, hey, this word has three definitions, and we're going to pick and choose the definition that justifies <laughs> uh, justifies Protestant theology because we're Protestants. That's not going to be our method today. We're going to look at the context and use that to help us determine what's being meant by these words. So with that being said, let's get to the meat. It's time for the meat. All right, so here's the, here's the deal. We have one major interpretive key to both James 2 and Romans 3 and 4, and that is actually Genesis, <laughs> Genesis chapter 15. The reason why is that both of these passages quote Genesis 15, 6 to support their claim 
that a person is justified either by faith alone or not by faith alone, right? And Genesis 15, 6 is this interesting verse, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So before we jump into James and Romans, this is not going to be a huge surprise to our longtime listeners, but we're going to go to the Old Testament. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> and we need to make sure we understand what, what's happening in Genesis 15, because that's going to help us figure out what Paul and James understand when they're quoting this passage. So uh, let's go ahead and, and jump into 15. Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, context, Abram is the same person as Abraham. This is before his name gets changed. So the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So some of the background that we see in this passage here is you have Abram, and he has already been promised by God that God is going to like lead him into this new land. Um, but now God and, and Abram are sort of having this discussion, and Abram's saying, like, I mean, you know, cool, God, that you've given me all these promises, but, like, I don't have any kids. So after I die, the person who's going to inherit everything is just going to be my, you know, my servant, this guy, Eliezer of Damascus. But then God comes back to him and says, no, 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 that's not how it's going to be at all. You are going to have a son, and the heirs of your household are going to be like as numerous as the stars in the sky. Like, I'm going to give you so many descendants, is like basically what God is saying here. And the way that it gets concluded is, as we said before, that Abram believed God that, you know, he's going to have all of these descendants. And so God counts that belief to him as righteousness, like as, like essentially goodness, and it's interesting that it says, like, he counted it to him. It doesn't say, like, Abraham believed the Lord and it was righteous or God, like, you know, made Abraham righteous because he believed the Lord. It says that God counted it to him as righteousness. Like, he thought of it as righteous. God thought of it as righteous and, and uh, you know, I guess uh, imported to him righteousness on virtue of that belief like counted it to him as righteousness, which, you know, who is really righteous? Yeah, yeah. And, and the way that I like to think about this is, you know, it's like Abram, uh, you know, Abram has his like bank account of righteousness. And it's like, you know, he didn't work no job. He didn't get a paycheck or anything like that. But God like gave him a righteousness credit, like God deposited, right, deposited righteousness into his account is kind of the idea right here. You know, it's like because of Abraham's belief, God gives him righteousness credits. Sweet. But but yeah, so this is obviously a, a foundational like text in the development of God's covenant with his people, right? He's like, no, trust me, you're gonna have you're gonna have a child. You're gonna have a huge number of offspring. And 
Abraham believes God. He's getting old, right? <laughs> but he believes God. He's like, God's going to do what he said he was going to do. And as we're going to find out when we jump into Romans 4, that is exactly what Paul identifies as what is so virtuous about Abraham's belief here. He's fully convinced in the Lord's promise, despite the fact that things aren't looking great. You know, uh, most people have kids way earlier than Abraham and Sarah did. So, yes. So that being said, we've looked at Genesis 15. Let's jump into Romans 4. And this comes right after the 328 passage that is kind of under the microscope here. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We're going to actually read all the way through Romans 4 and kind of talk about it as we go, because we want to make sure we understand Paul's deal. <laughs> like, Because Paul surely has a deal. Like, Romans is one great big Paul having a deal session. So, like, we, yeah, <laughs> anyways, let's, let's jump right into Romans 4. And we're going to see especially how he uses this Genesis 15 text. All right, Romans 4, starting in verse 1 here. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, that's our, our quote from Genesis 15 right there. Yeah, and let's stop right there, because we already have an interesting thing here. Paul asserts that if Abraham was justified by works, if that was the case, he has something to boast about. And Paul's big concern in the book of Romans, which uh, brr, we don't have enough time to demonstrate this, but Paul is very concerned that if we are right before God on the basis of our good works, then we can boast. And Paul hates boasting. <laughs> so Paul's like, the Gentiles and the Jews would be able to be arrogant against one another were they able to boast about their good works. And God has actually orchestrated salvation in such a way that he is the sole like, reason why we are justified before him, not our works. And because of that, we can't boast. And Paul really, really, really is interested in having a theology of justification that refuses, I, I guess, that excludes our ability to boast. Then immediately after Paul you know, speculates about what would happen if Abraham was justified by works, he then goes on to quote our little passage from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was belief. It was faith that justified Abraham, not his works. Paul has already asserted that in just these first three verses. Let's continue. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So this is getting back to the analogy that I showed you before, or that I explained before of like, you know, you've got your righteousness bank account. And the whole idea here is like, if you did something to earn the money that, you know, or earn the righteousness that's being put into your righteousness account right here, then it's like, it's, it's not a gift. It's just like your wages, like you're entitled to it, like you're given it because you deserve it. But Paul's whole point here is that, you know, but if it's belief that is the source of this justification, this righteousness credit that's given to you, then it's not something that you earned. It's something that's just been given to you. And so as he's already asserted, it's not something that you can boast about. Absolutely. Yeah, we already again, we, we keep seeing that come up, right? If you can earn it, then you can boast about it. 
And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. I mean, that's like the new perspective on Paul. How do you get around that? Okay, let's move on though. So his faith is counted as righteousness. And then going into verse six, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he's going to quote the Psalms here, starting in verse seven. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And that ends the quote from Psalms. And then Paul goes on in verse 9 to say, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. Whew, stop right there. Okay, golly. <laughs> Paul is so dense. Okay, so when was faith counted to Abraham as righteousness, according to Paul? When, was, when did this happen? It was before his circumcision. Abraham was circumcised in Genesis 17, not in Genesis 15. He was still Abram at this point, even. Like, this is early in Abraham's journey with God. Right, and so Paul's whole point here is that back in 15 is when the counting as righteousness happens. And it's like way later that he's renamed, he's circumcised, he's given his son, the whole sacrifice of Isaac thing. Like, all of that is way in the future. You know, so, but way before that, before the circumcision is when the justification happens. And so Paul's point here actually is that, so it's also possible for Gentiles, people who are not circumcised, to similarly be justified because circumcision isn't part of how the justification happens. Now, this is where we are going to give a little bit of due to the new perspective on Paul people and say, they are right that a person is justified apart from circumcision. It's just that that's not the only thing that they're justified apart from. Exactly. And that'll be especially clear in the next two verses. Listen carefully, because these are a doozy, like grammatically, but they're so crucial. Verse 11, he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That's us Gentiles. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Whew. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just get high on Paul. Um, <laughs> like, this is just so crazy. So circumcision is a seal that later comes after his righteousness that he gained by having belief in God back in Genesis 15. And the reason Paul identifies as to why the events take place in this order is that Abraham is now the father of all who believe. Both groups of people, Gentiles and Jews, for all of us, Abraham is our father. He's the father of all the uncircumcised believers, right? Righteousness can be counted on the basis of faith alone and not on our, our obedience to the law, including circumcision. But now Abraham is also the father of the circumcised who actually believe in God. It says the ones who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had even before he was circumcised. So 
he's talking about Jews who actually believe in God and don't just assume that because they're Jews and are circumcised and following the Jewish distinctives, that therefore they are in a right standing before God. And so in this sense, we get this. And so in this sense, we actually get a really cool uh, a fulfillment of the prophecy that God is giving or this word that God is giving in Genesis 15 when he says, you know, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky is like we are also like spiritual descendants of Abraham. So all of us Gentiles who believe in Christ, we, we also then are like considered like children of Abraham in this, that we are kind of included then in this, you know, these descendants. And so we're part of that, those numerous stars in the sky that are going to be part of Abraham's inheritance. So it's actually really cool that Paul is like looping in and, and even giving us part of the fulfillment of the quote of Genesis 15. Yeah, that's actually super cool. I hadn't even thought of that, that like <laughs> it was literally fulfilled in the fact that Abraham did in fact become the the father of the whole nation of Israel, the, the first patriarch, but then it was spiritually fulfilled in like, holy moly, and it's, it's the year 2020 and believers of Abraham's faith in Abraham's God are on every country in the entire planet, even where they're persecuted and it's not allowed for them to worship that God. They're worshiping that God. I mean, Abraham was tremendously blessed. I'd say God fulfilled his promise, right? Yeah, beyond Abraham's wildest imaginations. A hundred percent. Well, and okay, Paul's actually going to comment on that if we move on into verse 13 here. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Whew. That's kind of that's kind of rough if you were a first century Jew to hear that, right? Like that the law is not the crucial part of being part of God's like people. It isn't what gets us into God's good graces, so to speak, right? But rather the promise it's just that God promises and that we believe God's promises. That's what makes us a child of God. And that's part of Paul's point back when he says that, you know, circumcision is, you know, it's this sign, it's this seal of the righteousness. You know, kind of the way that I think about this is uh, like, you know, a seal is, you know, the thing that you'd put on a letter after you're done writing it. And so kind of the idea here is that the righteousness is like, that's the contents of the letter that's being written. And then the circumcision is actually the seal, the thing that like, you know, it, it's the stamp on the envelope. It's that like, you know, wax that gets put over the front of it to, you know, make sure its contents are are made safe or, or like uh, kept safe. And so, you know, in that sense, it's like the whole point is that the seal isn't the letter itself. Like it's it's not the righteousness itself. And that's kind of Paul's whole point here is that it's it's not through the adherence to the law, specifically in this case, like the context is about circumcision, that you get the righteousness because like that's just the seal on the outside of the envelope, not the actual contents of the righteousness inside. Absolutely. I think that's a good way to think about it. And um, yeah, so I guess moving on from there, verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And that's that's like a whole nother can of worms with Paul. But uh, I think what he's talking about there is that, you know, if you don't actually have the law in front of you in words, you might know that you did something wrong, but you can't know that you transgressed a specific law. Like it's just a general moral conscience and the Gentiles don't have the law in front of them, but the Jews do. So that actually means that in a certain sense, it the Jews are more 
responsible and more condemned for their failure to perfectly keep the law. That's why the law brings wrath. Even though the law is perfect and holy and good, as Paul will say in Romans 7, it does bring wrath. And then, so moving on to verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. That, that's great. <laughs> that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So God gives life to the dead. That's us Gentiles who are not believers in God. We don't know God. He's not in our life. But God also calls into existence the things that do not exist. Well, what does that remind us of? Perhaps the fact that Abraham didn't have a child yet, that God gave him a child. And in fact, that's just what Paul will go on to say. He says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So there we get Paul's understanding of what it means for Abraham to be a man of faith, that he's fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He was unwavering concerning the promise of God, and he grew strong in his faith. So what does real faith look like, according to Paul in this passage? Is it just like saying, I believe in God? It's, it's much more like trust and dependence. At least that's what I'm getting out of it. Yeah, totally. It's this reliance that Abraham has on God to fulfill his promise. So when, when Paul is talking about like faith being the catalyst for justification, right? It, it depends on faith, he just said in verse 16. Let's be clear that Paul is not talking about a mere intellectual agreement with like the existence of God or of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And that'll become important when we get to James, because we'll find out that that's James' exact point. Since we're here and we're already camping in Romans 4 for a bit, I just wanted to point that out. Just a few more verses here, and then we'll be done with the chapter, and they are quite illuminating. John, do you want to carry us to the end? Will do. So re repeating verse 21, so he, Abraham, was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness, end quote. But the words, it was counted to him, were not only for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There's that Ooh. word. <laughs> Come in full circle right at the end of the chapter there, Paul. But yeah, so like his faith was counted to him as righteousness because he was fully convinced in the promise of God. But those words were written for our sake as well, because we are the children of Abraham, the true spiritual children of Abraham. And it will be counted to us who believe in God, who raised Jesus, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So right at the end, Paul was reminding us that this raising of the dead of Jesus, our Lord, was for our sins, right? Like, so, you know, just being sinners doesn't, doesn't disqualify us. 
um, for this being counted as righteous, which is crazy because to be righteous means to be like in the right, to be without sin, you know. But here's the, the, the very Jesus who died for our trespasses and belief in him can make us righteous even though we are guilty of trespassing. I just wanted to point out here as well that, uh, that earlier I mentioned God giving life to the dead and calling into existence the things that do not exist. I mentioned giving life to the dead as like spiritually raising us Gentiles from the dead. Although actually, now that I re- <laughs> got to the end of the chapter, I'm kind of realizing he's probably actually just talking about raising Jesus from the dead. I might have overinterpreted that earlier. But regardless, I think that is an interesting connection that you're bringing up there. That it is, Paul is connecting that part of Abraham's belief in God is this belief in the capacity to raise the dead, is, is sort of the way that Paul is, is using this idea. And that similarly, that is also part of our faith as well, of God's capacity, his ability to raise the dead. And, and in this case, specifically, it's raising Jesus from the dead. And so that's God, you know, so, so Paul here is bringing it full circle, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and so that we also, if we believe God's promise, it will be counted to us as righteousness as well. That if we have faith the way that Abraham had faith, this being fully convinced of God's promises, then we also will be given righteousness as well. We will be justified. Apart from works of the law, even if we are lawless, even if we have sin, right? We are blessed because God will count righteousness apart from works. And that's very clear, especially with the quotation in the Psalms earlier to kind of like summarize this whole section. So it's very clear from Paul that this initial counting of righteousness, not talking about sanctification, not talking about the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do after we already become Christians, but just this initial becoming of a Christian, being justified, being incorporated as as part of God's people by virtue of being declared righteous. It couldn't be more clear in Romans 4 that this happens apart from our lawlessness, apart from our sin. God does not count that against us. And it's not by doing any good works that we get into God's good graces. And it's not just circumcision. It's not just talking about that, although that is Paul's overriding concern in talking about Abraham, but rather it's talking about all kinds of lawlessness, including things that Gentiles should have known better not to do in the first place. Yeah, and the tenses here are really interesting because, you know, Paul is focusing us specifically on the event that happens in Genesis 15 of the moment when righteousness is credited to Abraham, and it's, you know, because of his belief. And and Paul does talk a little bit about the kind of the continuing belief that Abraham has, this can, this growing in confidence that, that Abraham sees through the rest of his life. But Paul's main focus really is that, like, the moment of justification, this moment of crediting righteousness, happens in Genesis 15 with Abraham's belief. But that does kind of like raise the question of, well, then what kind of happens with the rest of one's life? And that question, I think, is actually answered really well by James. So let's pivot over now and look at James chapter 2 and dig into the context of our original verse. So we'll start here in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but giving, but without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right away, one thing that I find interesting about those verses is that he gives this example of the cold and hungry you know, brother or sister, and they show up at your doorstep or whatever, and they're like, hey, can I, like, you know, have food? (laughs) And you're just like, oh, go in peace, be warmed and filled, right? It's like giving them a little blessing and sending them on their way, but you don't actually give them food. Uh, That is, first of all, a failure to, to meet basic Christian obligations to care for the poor, right? So that's not doing good works. That's the kind of, you know, not true faith that James is talking about, right? But also, second of all, it, it is a metaphor for the person who says he has faith but doesn't have works. So it, to, to just say like, oh, be filled as though that is somehow a tantamount to actually feeding them is useless the same way that saying I have faith but having no actions that would back up that claim to prove that I have faith you know, it's it's really kind of a clever metaphor because it both proves his point that faith needs to act on behalf of the poor, but it also <laughs> is a great picture for the, just this sort of silliness when we say we have faith, but like just saying we have faith doesn't mean we do. Yeah, I think that's a great point that you bring up. And, and the other thing that I would love to highlight about this is the, you know, we start out this verse of like saying, you know, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. And so you kind of like are already being presented by James with this contrast of this this verbal uh, affirmation of faith of like saying oh yeah i have faith but that there is no like matching action that results from it and that's kind of like what he's talking about here and so it's like it, it's that James is introducing this idea of like a fake faith a faith that is claimed but is not actually real it's dead it doesn't do anything you know, and this is in contradistinction with the uh, the way that Paul was talking about faith, uh, the faith that Abraham has, that Abraham is like fully convinced of God, you know, his ability to, you know, his, his capacity to to follow through on his promises, which is like, I, I, like, doesn't even feel in the same ballpark as the kind of thing that James is talking about here with this dead faith that like doesn't do anything it's like oh i just say that i have this faith i say go and be filled but there isn't actually any sense in which there's reality to the thing that i'm saying yeah i think you're right it's a far cry from being fully convinced of god's promises and you know paul even makes clear to say that abraham is growing in his faith as he gives glory to god right there is like a He's he's continuing to walk the walk, right? He's believing against all reality that's in front of him, that despite how old I am, we're going to have kids. Despite Sarah being barren, the Lord is going to do what he said he's going to do. That's a very vibrant living faith, right? I, I believe, despite evidence to the contrary, that God will do what he said. It's very different than a dead faith. Picking up in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. All right, let's stop right there. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, right? So that goes along with what I was noting in Romans 4, that like, there's a big difference between like 
understanding cognitively that that God is is you know all powerful and that He exists as a Trinity and that Jesus died for our sins. Like you can have no relationship with God whatsoever and yet believe every doctrinal statement that's true about God. Like that's kind of what James is hitting at here, right? The demons actually have pretty decent theology, all things considered. It's his point. Like probably better theology than most of us. Like they've been studying God for a long time as their adversary though, not as their ally. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, Pause here. This is really interesting. So James also is bringing up the story of Abraham, but it's really interesting because he's not bringing up the same story about Abraham that Paul brought up before. You know, this, you know, he's not going to Genesis 15 of when, you know, Abraham believed and it was credited as righteousness. He's bringing up a much later story in the life of Abraham, this instance where, you know, Abraham offers up his son Isaac, you know, the, the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. James is also bringing up Abraham, but a different story, and we're going to see it's because he's making a different point than Paul is making. Picking up in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, that's Abraham's works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. All right, there it is. There's our the crux of our argument here, okay? So there's the quotation of Genesis 15, 6, and John already alluded to this, but um, what? What do you mean the scripture was fulfilled, James? That scripture was in Genesis 15, and you're talking about Genesis 22, where Abraham is offering up Isaac. So what in the world is being talked about here? And I think this is, this is crucial. Again, that's why we went into Genesis 15 for so long. James is asserting that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. That's exactly quoted what he said in verse 21. Whereas Paul directly asserts that Abraham was justified by faith when he believed God's promise to give him offspring. Well, so hold the phone. Those actually aren't contradictions at all, because James and Paul are talking about different events, and they're talking about different means by which a person is quote-unquote justified. So, James and Paul don't disagree, at least as far as the context gives us some idea of what our contradicting verses supposedly say, right? So, justified by works at the offering of Isaac, justified by faith at the believing of God's promise much earlier. That's our, our two little passages here. So hopefully everybody's followed the argument so far. We needed to get through Genesis 15 and Romans 4, I think, to get to this point in James 2. And I hope it was worth it. <laughs> I think it was worth it. And I think it's also interesting if you notice that uh, had God not intervened in the story of Abraham's binding of Isaac, then Abraham would have ended up killing Isaac. And that would have been killing the very son that God promised to him in Genesis 15. And I think that's why James views this event as fulfilling the scripture of Genesis 15. Um, he's not talking about it being fulfilled, you know, in his era many years later. He's talking about in Genesis 22, already the scripture from Genesis 15 was fulfilled. And it was fulfilled by 
Abraham's willingness to give up his own son, who was the promise. Like Abraham has such faith in God that he's able to give up what he perceived God's promise to be just because he was he was so sure that God would fulfill his promise. So, you know, and, and Isaac was, was, you know, a lad at this point. He wasn't a little baby. It'd been many years since God had fulfilled his promise, or so Abraham thought, by giving him Isaac. But here, Abraham is willing to give all that up. That's how faithful he is. Like, that's crazy to me <laughs> that uh, this very thing that God had promised, Abraham would be willing to give up even his understanding of the fulfillment of God's promise because he believed that God would fulfill his promise. Finishing up with the last two verses here in 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's kind of another metaphor there, right? Like the body and the spirit go together. If the spirit leaves the body, we die. So in the same way, if the kind of faith we say we have doesn't have works, then that faith is dead. It lies dormant. It's useless, as he said in another verse. And here we also have another example of uh, being justified by works with Rahab, which is an interesting one. Um, For those who don't remember the story in the book of Joshua, Rahab, at great risk to herself, receives the Israelite spies into her home and lets them escape the city without being noticed. They would have been killed had they been found. So she's protecting the lives of, she's not a Jew, right? She's a Canaanite, uh, and she's protecting the lives of these Jewish messengers. Why? Well, the text makes clear that it's because she's heard about the God of Israel, and she believes in that God. Um, so, So there's another interesting, probably not crucial to our argument here, because Abraham's the key, but I found that a striking, like, picture of justification by works. The proof is in the pudding, right? She was willing to protect people when it came down to it, which is an indication that she truly believed God. Yes, and I, I think one of the other interesting things about this inclusion is it it actually is kind of reinfor- reinforcing Paul's point in Romans 4, and that is that, you know, Rahab, she's also justified. But, you know, at this point, like, she's not a member of the, like you said, she's a Canaanite, so, like, she hasn't been following the law. In fact, we're told she's a prostitute, so she's been, like, violating the law for, you know, her adult life up to this point. But still, she is justified apart from the circumcision and, like, inclusion in the Jewish community that, uh, uh, you know, was something that was being asserted by the opponents of, of Paul. And so, in fact, this story about Rahab is actually reinforcing Paul's point, not contradicting it, as, you know, some people would say that this and Romans 4 are against one another. In fact, this is actually, like, totally in keeping with what Paul is saying. Absolutely. So, I think we've kind of hit at the main points of this passage, right? And I've already sort of had my rant about (laughs) the justification by faith and the justification by works happening at a different time. So that being said, though, which is it? Is Abraham justified by faith or by works? Or is it by both, as the Roman Catholic teaching would assert, right? What, What do we make of this? And I think now is the time we can synthesize what we've sort of discovered in commenting on these passages as we go through them. And uh, figure out like what what each of these authors means when they say faith, when they say works, and when they say justified. And because all three of these terms are used differently, and if you haven't noticed already, we'll we'll make it clear. Uh, 
and let's but let's be very clear like before we go into this paul and james have to mean a different thing when they say justification because otherwise they contradict it's important that we resolve this yes i i think i think that the the unbelieving scholars do have a point and that is if they mean the same thing by justification or by justified then james and paul are contradicting each other and then there's this contradiction in the bible and you know like like there isn't a way of stitching these two things together if the definition of justification is the same in these two passages. Right, because even if we could, you know, we could make the argument that they were justified by faith and works, but let's be very clear that the passages say by faith apart from works, right? So so like these authors are are denying the other part of this as part of the justification process. So they're very exclusive about it. And that's why like, this is so crucial that we define the terms right. Because again, those unbelieving scholars would be correct. It, it's not that they can be both true. They have to be using the term differently. So that being said, let's jump into the term faith. So how does James use the term faith? Or, or actually, maybe let's start with Paul because we read Paul first. And we already touched on this, but let's re- recap. Right. Yes. And and yeah, like like Jeremy just said, we we already talked about this in the passage and the you know, it's it's found in the middle of the section where we're where we see that Abraham was fully convinced of God's promises. And so that's kind of what Paul means by faith in this case of being fully convinced of God's promises. And, you know, part of what comes along with that is also then the growing in that conviction the same way that Abraham uh, grew in his conviction as well. But whereas for James... I think James internally understands faith the same way as Paul, but in this passage, he's rhetorically using the word faith to refer to this cheapened definition of it that gets rid of like the whole relationship with God part that like ignores obedience and how necessary it is. And that's why Paul, or sorry, why James starts his passage saying, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? And that word that is pretty crucial here, right? And so so James throughout this passage is talking about a non-working, dead, useless faith. I do think in his mind, James probably agrees with Paul that like, well, that's not really faith. Like faith is full conviction. Faith is, uh, you know, unwavering belief in God. But rhetorically in this passage, it's being used in this other sense. Yeah, you almost get the sense that uh, there are uh, like, it's almost like if James was writing the same letter today that he'd put like quotation marks around the word faith in this whole passage of like, you know, can that quote, quote, faith save him? It's like, yeah, this idea where he's like assuming a the definition of faith that other people are using for the purpose of showing that the that whole thing is nonsense. Precisely. I mean, if even the demons can have that faith, clearly that faith can't save anyone. Right. And James is just asserting that, you know, genuine faith involves more than the intellect. Okay, so that's that's how they use faith. What about works? So as we've already talked about, Paul's whole idea of works of the law uh, includes not just Jewish distinctives, but also the whole law. um, A lot of which is like, thou shalt not do this, you know, Um, and there's there's plenty of positive laws as well. But uh, but Paul is thinking specifically of the kind of lawless deeds that people do that can exclude them from God's kingdom. And when Paul talks about, you know, 
the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You know, he's talking about avoiding sin in great ways, right? Like being a Jew who doesn't disobey the Ten Commandments. And perhaps is even, you know, doing good deeds in his community, giving to the needy and praying and fasting. Um, so these are all part of what it means to have works. And Paul is asserting that these things do not justify us. The evil works we do cannot cannot uh, keep us from being justified by faith. And the good works we do are not sufficient to justify us without faith. That's his idea of works. Right. Well, where on the other hand, James is uh, speaking of works in a, a like almost entirely positive construction of like these are active things that you do in obedience to God. Um, you know, in this case, the examples that we give are like giving food and clothing to your needy brother or sister. These are, you know, Abraham obeying God in like the binding of Isaac that we saw before. Or this is also Rahab protecting the spies and helping them to escape at, you know, great risk to herself. So for James, when he's speaking of works, he's very much thinking of this like doing good like things in obedience to God, rather than Paul, who really is is including big elements of like circumcision, where circumcision definitely isn't something that's in view here for James. Like he's not saying like, oh yeah, like faith, you know, is, you know, without works, you know, like that work of getting circumcised. Like that, that's not at all what James is talking about. It's much more of this like giving food and clothing to the poor or like protecting those who need protecting. Yeah, like charity. Like what we think of as above and going above and beyond uh, to to do good works to your neighbor in specific. And we didn't quote it, but at the end of James 1, James identifies religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Like for James to do good things, to like have our love for Christ flow over into love for neighbor in tangible, active ways, not just avoiding murdering your neighbor, <laughs> but valuing the life of your neighbor enough to give them their needs when they're needy, right? That's for James, that's what it means to be a true Christian and to have true undefiled religion. So there's works and faith. What about justification? And we've been talking about it the whole time, but let's just recap, right? Paul speaks of justification as a legal term. Are we righteous before God or not? How can we be accepted by God if we're sinners? But now let's kind of center in on, we haven't really defined James' use of justification yet. And this is going to be the crux of our argument and kind of why we, we don't agree with, I guess, a Roman Catholic view of justification. What is this other definition of justified that makes the most sense with the context of James 2, the way that we've understood it so far? Like, what do you, I don't know. What do you think, John? <laughs> well, I think that if, if I were to sort of summarize what it is that James seems to be getting at in this passage, is that there is a sense in which works are the way that you know whether your faith is alive or dead. That, you know, if there are no works, then it's that your faith is dead and can such a faith save you is kind of like his idea. And the reverse of that, if like, you know, but if you are doing these things, then it is evidence that you do have this faith. And in fact, James says, like, you know, I will show you my faith by what I do. And so there's this sense in which the works are, he's almost using them as like this evidence of the the faith that one has. So I think if you understand justification to be closer to this idea of like vindicating or like evidencing something 
that would make a lot more sense with what James is talking about. So when he says something like a person is justified by works, I don't think it's in this legal sense of like when the gavel falls, are you guilty or not guilty? I think it's much more this idea of like their their faith has been justified, like it has been like shown to be real or shown to be alive. It's like more, it would be closer to if we, you know, we're insisting on a courtroom analogy here, it's closer to the like presenting of evidence part of the court proceedings rather than the like gavel falling part of the court proceedings. Yeah, and I think James' use of justify is far more similar to how we use the word today, right? So if you're taking like a math test, and this I remember this phrase being used in like my high school math classes, it'll be like, you know, is this A or B? Justify your answer. I remember that specific phrase being used, justify your answer. Or we might ask someone to justify themselves. Like, hey, you've been late to work every day this week. Like, justify this. How can you justify this? Um, you know, it's kind of a SAT word. It's a bigger word. Maybe, you know, people don't use it all the time. But I've definitely heard the word used that way. And we're, we're what we're saying is like, you know, give an account for this. Like, explain this. Um, how can this be the case, right? And, and I think that's how James is using it. I really do. And I think that makes by far the most sense with the context. He can't be using it in this Pauline sense of like, you know, has God accepted us or not? Instead, he's using it in this sense of like, um, you know, showing your faith. And that's why he says, I will show you my faith by my works. Like it's, it's all over the place in this passage. And it's especially clear when we see that James interprets this Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness verse as being fulfilled in the binding of Isaac. In other words, like Abraham believed God. And why do we know he believed God? Well, we saw the ultimate example of it and his faith being so deep that he was able to, you know, stand and deliver on this crazy ask that God made of him. You know, he was willing to do it. But why? Because he was faithful. We know that he had faith and he was justified by works in the sense that that proved he had faith. And and I think this is not just um, a guess as to the meaning of it. There's other verses in the Bible that use the word justify this way. Um, so Luke 10, 29 is a great example. So this is the middle of the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, where you got this like teacher of the law and, or I don't remember if he was like a, what, what it says he is, like a scribe or a teacher of the law or whatever, but uh, he's some religious official and and he comes up to Jesus and he's like, you know, what should I what should I do to my neighbor? Actually, I'm going to look at the passage before we before I just like ramble about it. My apologies. So there, then it's a lawyer. It says in the ESV and he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says to him, hey, that's a good answer. That's like, you know, pretty darn good. You do that and you'll live. But then verse 29 in Luke 10, the lawyer responds and, and Luke says this, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And that prompts Jesus to launch into this discussion, the parable of, of the Good Samaritan, right? And the point of the parable ends up being that, like, it's not really who is your neighbor, it's more who should you be a neighbor to? Um, and that's the point of that parable. But uh, but I find it interesting that, that it says he's desiring to justify himself. Now, does it make any sense in the context to say that, like, 
this lawyer is like trying to be righteous and, and be declared righteous before God by, um, <laughs> by asking this question. No, he's trying to win an argument. <laughs> like, he's trying to demonstrate that, like, you know, that Jesus can get owned by facts and logic if the person who, you know, if the person who's debating with him is smart enough, right? So he's like, who is my neighbor? Answer me, riddle me this, rabbi. Like, he's he's thinking he's pulling a fast one over Jesus, but Jesus, of course, completely destroys him. You know, Jesus destroys him with facts and logic, <laughs> <Yeah>. but... <laughs> But that's what's going on there. It's uh, this lawyer thinks he's Ben Shapiro, but he's not. Jesus is the Ben Shapiro. <laughs> he's actually the college student who thinks he's making a smart point, right? Uh, <laughs> we way overuse that meme, but that's okay. Um, it's a good one. It's just so applicable. <laughs> right. So not only is, is this, uh, this sense of the term justify, does it make sense in our English use of the word, but far more importantly... The Greek word is used in the New Testament in a similar sense. You know, make an account for your faith, right? Your faith should not just be a statement you make. You shouldn't just say, go in peace, be warmed and filled. You should actually fill and clothe your neighbor. Um, and that's the idea. You shouldn't just say you have faith. Your actions should demonstrate that you have it. And, uh, and I think that's got to be what James means here because it just makes way more sense with the context. Um, whereas if you import that, that understanding into Paul, it doesn't work either. So I think that's why it's so crucial and that we don't just import like a Martin Luther definition of justification onto every use of that word in the Bible. Uh, like, yeah, we don't want to over theologize the Bible, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. The Bible is not a theology textbook. It's, it's normal language in the form of narratives and letters and also poems and other genres that we aren't covering today. But like the point is it uses normal language, not the specialized language of theology experts. And so we always need to look at the context lest we, uh, lest we overinterpret or add too much meaning to a term uh, that isn't really there. All right. So bringing it all together a little bit here at the end, let's kind of try to land somewhere with this of like, you know, how is it that a person is justified, you know, is, is sort of the big question of these two passages. And, you know, essentially the argument that we've made is that these are both kind of giving you answers to like different questions almost. Um, but like, I think maybe if we step back a little bit and highlight, you know, what is it do we think is the biblical teaching about the way that we are justified, we would say it's, it's essentially this, that our status before God uh, of, you know, either being righteous or unrighteous, this is in the sense of the gavel falling, like, are we declared guilty or not guilty? So our status before God is something that is entirely based upon the work that Christ has done. And this is essentially what Paul is talking about in the book of Romans, that there's no actions that we do or works that we do that influence whether or not we are declared righteous or unrighteous. The whole point is if you have faith in Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, if you are depending upon him, if you have this uh, uh, like fully convinced uh, state uh, in God's promise, then you will be declared righteous. Like you're standing before God is the gavel will fall and the, the verdict is not guilty. Now, this is kind of in line with the the sort of Luther's definition of justification of like, you know, what, like how is it that you're declared righteous? And it's also kind of the way that Paul is using things in Romans. 
Now, that being said, there is also a, like, a wider understanding of justification, which includes much more of this idea of, like, how is somebody vindicated? Which, in this case, actually sort of has context of, like, how do we, like, know about our own status, our own faith, and how do other people know about our faith as well? And the way that we are justified in that sense, where we are evidenced as people who have faith, is it's about our works. It's like, you know, whether we are doing the good works that God has commanded us to do, like loving our brothers and sisters by giving them the food that they need and the clothes that they need, by protecting people who need protection, by being obedient to God's commands, the way that Abraham was obedient to God's commands. And so in that sense, there is this kind of more holistic understanding of it, it's not like those actions of obedience to God are the way that we are declared righteous before him, but they are the way that we are, like, they are the evidence that we, in fact, have been declared righteous before God, that we do have the faith that we claim that we have. And to sort of link these two ideas together, it's that the way that Paul is using this, he's talking about, it's like it is through Christ and only through Christ that we are declared righteous before God. But our good works are totally necessary because they are the way, they are the evidence that we have the faith that we claim that we have. You know, I, I think as Protestants, let's make sure we understand this. And, you know, I, the idea that works are somehow not important or, or, or not, I mean, I don't think anyone would say they're not important, but I think a lot of people would phrase this as like they're not necessary. Or, or something. And it's true that they're not necessary in the sense that they don't sway God's opinion of us. But it is not true that they're not necessary if by that we mean you can come forward at an altar call and accept Jesus into your heart and then like never have any change in your life and somehow expect to go to heaven when you die. Well, you don't have any personal relationship with God at all if that's the case. Like you're not even slightly following the footsteps of the faith of Abraham, which is what Paul identifies as the behavior required to, quote unquote, have faith, right? So if you really have faith in God, you'll walk with God. And there's all there's tons of scriptures. Romans 2, 6, he will render to each one according to his works, right? You've got Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, right? He The, the people who don't help their neighbor, who are callous to the needs of their neighbor, he will tell them that they should depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So let's not, let's not, I mean, misunderstand this. And I, I think perhaps it, we do ourselves a disservice as Protestants to our Catholic brothers and sisters when we are not correctly identifying this, because I think people will misunderstand Protestantism as ignorance of the necessity of good works. And that's not at all the case. Um, it shouldn't be. And uh, we should be more theologically and biblically careful than that. Good works are necessary and they're praiseworthy. So like, let's do them because we're, we've been accepted by God already. That's how we should approach it, I think. Amen. It's time for the other meat. All right, first application point I think is, uh, is good to start with. Important debates in the church can center on very tough passages to grasp. Uh, so let's have humility about it. Obviously, like, this was a long discussion just to get through Romans 4 and Genesis 15, and 
it's it's easy to understand why a lot of Christians kind of ignore this apparent contradiction because it really does require a lot of brain resources to to handle it. So again, remember, Peter says that Paul's letters are hard to understand. We have said that on this podcast many times. So let's have some humility. Let's debate these things vigorously, but with some humility and uh, and acceptance of one another. You know, we don't have to kill each other over it the way that they did <laughs> right after the Protestant Reformation in the religious wars. Let's just be peaceful about it. Yeah. And point number two is, you know, this idea of justification by faith alone, which, you know, we've you know, sussed out through our discussion in Romans 4, this is something that should be encouraging to us and comforting to us, um, particularly in moments of sin and weakness, when we do fall short, when we do, in fact, fail to love our brothers and sisters, when we fail to be obedient to God, justification by faith should be a great comfort to us. It would be wrong for us to think that because we fail in obedience to God, that our faith is dead. And that's not really what James is saying anyway. And more to the point, the, the, the center of things is that our justification before God, our right standing before God, is something that is contingent upon faith alone and not on whether or not we've done enough good works. Very much so. The other thing that justification by faith alone should encourage us is to repent. I mean, we know there's forgiveness if we just have faith in God and we believe in him. So like we're frail and we sin and like that's well it's not okay i don't want to say it's okay but but perhaps the way to put it would be like we don't have to beat ourselves up over it we can just repent and move on like you know i think that's what god would would want of us um not to dwell on our sin any longer than necessary to to heal from it and move on and then point four here is to loop in uh, uh, James's understanding of justification, which we've argued is, you know, closer to this idea of vindication by works. So your justification by works is that your faith is vindicated by the works that you do, that that should be compelling to, uh, to us to do right actions, that we should be encouraged and motivated to be obedient to God and loving to our brothers and sisters, because that's the way that we demonstrate our faith to be alive. So, Let's go and do good works. Amen. And I think part of that that I want to highlight, because I think it's just, you know, an ever important issue, is that good works are especially praiseworthy when they involve protecting life at risk or cost to oneself even, right? Um, go in peace, be warmed and filled. That's just talk. But giving your own goods to, to, you know, sacrificing your own possessions to give someone else what they need to live is true virtue. It's true religion. Um, and then Rahab, James mentions, she was justified by works when she risked her own safety to protect the Israelite spies. And I can't help but think of this as related to abortion. Uh, and I think the obvious application today um, of this stuff, uh, one of many great applications to be sure, is to just, we need to vigorously oppose abortion. Too many of us are, are far too calm about this, you know, and, and I guess there's plenty of practical ways to help, right? Giving to mothers who are in need, giving to crisis pregnancy centers that don't encourage women to, to get an abortion or, or even considering adoption. Um, these are all practical ways that the church can act instead of just talk. And to be sure, talk is part of action, especially when there's so much propaganda around 
the issue. I, I, I do hear Christians, unfortunately, um, try to disparage people who speak against abortion, um, saying like, oh, well, you know, whatever, you should like help people. Okay, well, you know, th- there's talk and there's action. It's not that we don't, <laughs> you know, I guess we, it's not that we should never say we have faith. It's just that our faith should be backed up by action. So in the same way, like it's not, you haven't done anything wrong to to speak out against abortion, but let's also do practical things to help as well. Um, and I think that's that's kind of what I want to say about that. <laughs> yeah, and the thing that I would add there is we have the encouragement toward this idea of, you know, provide for the lives of other people at risk to ourself in that that this is like what Christ has done for us, that Jesus didn't just risk his life to provide life to us. He actually sacrificed his life to bring life to us. And so in that sense, we should also be looking toward ways that we can be sacrificing our own selves to bring life to other people. Amen. And then the bonus application, uh, our last point here is that, you know, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's always a good idea to go look at the Old Testament context. This is our classic, the Old Testament. It's only like the eighth time. Yep, it's the Old Testament is important application point. (laughs) It's time for milk, not solid food. And today for our milk, not solid food, we're just going to quote Paul's quotation of the Psalms, the Old Testament, from uh, Romans 4, 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen. Amen. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.